Greetings. This is Roger Kimball, the editor and publisher of The New Criterion. I'm speaking to you today from a semi-secure, undisclosed location. Our world headquarters in New York has yet fully to reopen, but I am happy to say that there are little signs of life everywhere, and I hope that by the time October rolls around, I'll be introducing that issue to you once again from New York. In the meantime, I'd like to introduce you to our September 2020 issue, copies of which are winging their way to mailboxes across the world. And as always, the entire issue is available online in that great digital mailbox known as the Internet at www.newcriterion.com. Just a few highlights. Our lead feature is from Alexandra Solzhenitsyn's forthcoming memoir, appearing here for the first time in English, of his trip to the UK in the mid-1980s, during that period from 1978 to 1994, when he was exiled in America. The account of his meeting with Prince Charles and Princess Diana are worth the price of admission. I'd also like to call your attention to Anthony Daniels' superb evisceration of White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo and How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. You feel in reading them, Daniels writes, that you have been cornered at a party by a monomaniac who will not let you escape until he has preached you into total silence, if not acquiescence. The monomaniacs seem to be everywhere. Indeed, in this season of round-the-clock racial obsessiveness, you may have noticed that the movie Gone with the Wind has been enrolled in the Index Prohibitorum of Politically Correct Impermissible Entertainments. The great Bruce Bauer takes a look back at that movie and compares it with the book by Margaret Mitchell, you won't want to miss this brilliant essay. Finally, I'd like to mention one more item from the library of hectoring monomania. I mean, Anne Applebaum's new book, Twilight of Democracy, which Conrad Black reviews with literary panache, political intelligence, and historical awareness, qualities that are sadly lacking in Applebaum's self-indulgent memoir. You'll find much else to beguile an idle hour in our September issue, including, amusingly, consideration of that great wit and baseball phenomenon, Yogi Berra. But for now, I'd like to leave you with our September notes and comments. The first is called The Mob Comes for the Art World. When we left you in June to enter our annual state of estivation, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the principal author of the New York Times' malignant fantasy known as the 1619 Project, had just won a Pulitzer Prize. The world was looking forward to the end of the shutdown caused by the Chinese virus. Remember, 15 days to slow the spread and the return of normality. We are still waiting. As we write, many cities across the country are engulfed by riots. 
which many in the media persist in describing as peaceful protests. Our favorite example of this gambit was provided in late May by MSNBC's Ali Velshi, who stood in front of a burning police station and assured viewers that, quote, protesters were, quote, not, generally speaking, unruly. For her part, Hannah Jones was more candid. It would be an honor, she said, were the 2020 riots to be called the 1619 riots. According to the narrative, the riots slash protests were in response to the death of George Floyd at the end of May. In fact, the death of Floyd was at most the pretext for the orgy of politically correct racialist grandstanding that continued and indeed accelerated throughout the summer. The cause was anti-civilization animus, stoked by the same fires of anti-American hatred that made the 1960s and early 1970s so cataclysmic. In their columns below, James Bowman and James Pinero have more to say on the sociology and the larger civilizational implications of this phenomenon. Here, we would like to minute how the union of racialist hysteria and obeisance to the dictates of woke identity politics has plunged the art world, and by extension, the world of culture generally, into a destructive purity spiral. We take the phrase purity spiral from the journalist Gavin Haynes. Quote, a purity spiral occurs, he writes, when a community becomes fixated on implementing a single value that has no upper limit and no single agreed interpretation. The result is a moral feeding frenzy. Students of history who know all about this species of perverted gustatory overindulgence. The French Revolution is one locus classicus, and that macabre carnival the more extreme Montagnards consumed the somewhat more moderate Girondists before turning to consume themselves. No Citoyen, not even Robespierre himself, could be sufficiently virtuous to satisfy the inexorable demands of revolutionary zeal. In every case, Haynes notes, what we see is, quote, a bidding war for morality turned into a proxy war for power. Thus, it invariably happens that the purity spiral is also a search for enemies, a concerted effort to divide the world between the tiny coterie of the blessed and the madding crowd of the damned. The game, Haynes writes, is always one of purer than thou. Writing in New York Magazine this summer, the commentator Andrew Sullivan noted the prominent role that language, that is, the effort to police language, plays in the economy of coercion. Revolutionaries, he wrote, also create new forms of language to dismantle the existing order. The use of the term white supremacy, Sullivan continues, to mean not the KKK or the antebellum South, but American society as a whole in the 21st century has become routine on the left, as if it were now beyond dispute. 
The word racist, which was widely understood quite recently to be prejudicial treatment of an individual based on the color of their skin, now requires no intent to be racist in the former sense, just acquiescence in something called structural racism, which can mean any difference in outcomes among racial groupings. Being colorblind is therefore now being racist. Sullivan continues, and there is no escaping this. The woke shift their language all the time so that words that were one day fine are now utterly reprehensible. You can't keep up, which is the point. The result is an exercise of cultural power through linguistic distortion. Thus, Andrew Sullivan. And exactly, where does it end? Well, for Andrew Sullivan, it ended with his leaving his position at New York Magazine. Candor and wokeness do not mix. Haynes focuses on two niche activities, the world of knitting and that of young adult fiction. Are there any more unlikely candidates for corruption by wokeness? But that is just the point. Everything is susceptible to the demands of the purity spiral. You can never be revolutionary enough, comrade, or sufficiently green, or fervid enough in your anti-racism. How dare you pretend that knitting is exempt from the demands of racial hectoring? How dare you think that you can write about the experience of a black teen if you are white? The examples that Gavin Haynes describes are plenty surreal, and a look at the day's news is full of examples of the purity spiral at work. First, it was statues of Confederate soldiers. Then, it was the statues of imperfect abolitionists. Then, it was Lincoln himself. Some years ago in this space, we quoted the historian Nigel Bigger, who, speaking about the clamor over a statue of Cecil Rhodes at Oriel College, Oxford, predicted this process of repudiation inflation. If Rhodes must fall, he said, so must Churchill, whose views on empire and race were similar, and so probably must Abraham Lincoln. While Lincoln liberated African-American slaves, he doubted they could be integrated into white society and favored their separate development, their apartheid, in an African colony. If we insist on our heroes being pure, then we are not going to have any. Last year, the shine on Mahatma Gandhi's halo came off when we learned of his view that Indians were culturally superior to black Africans. Should this blot out all his remarkable achievements? I think not, said Bigger. Purity spirals end only when forthrightly confronted and exposed. Efforts at conciliation, like the habit of appeasement, serve to increase their ferocity. Haynes noted that purity spirals involve a process he terms moral outbidding, which corrodes the group from within, rewarding those who put themselves at the extremes and punishing nuance and divergence relentlessly. The key to disrupting them is to find strategies to short-circuit that metabolism, disrupting the pipeline of rewards. This summer, word came that Keith Christensen, perhaps the single most distinguished curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, was beset by the mob. His tort? 
commenting via his Instagram account on a drawing of the French archaeologist Alexandre Lenoir. Lenoir devoted himself to saving French monuments from the all-consuming maw of the French Revolution. Quote, How many great works of art have been lost to the desire to rid ourselves of a past of which we don't approve, Christensen wrote, and how grateful we are to people like Lenoir who realize that their value, both artistic and historical, extended beyond a defining moment of social and political upheaval and change. Uh Uh-oh. Beyond a defining moment of social and political upheaval and change? Clearly, Christensen was just asking for it. For it is axiomatic in the world of the purity spiral that there is no beyond or outside the defining moment of social and political upheaval. The spiral is total. According to a story in the New York Times, although Christensen, quote, appeared, only appeared, to be arguing for the preservation of monuments, he also struck some as insensitive and tone-deaf. This is disgusting, wailed another comment, not acceptable. In our view, Christensen had two viable choices. He could simply have ignored the criticism, or he could have responded with a two-word Anglo-Saxon imperative whose second word is you. He did neither. Rather, he took down the post and closed his Instagram account. In other words, abject capitulation. The Mets director, Max Holine, hopped onto the self-abasement cavalcade, tugging on his metaphorical forelock and whining that, quote, there is no doubt that the Met and its development is also connected with the logic of what is defined as white supremacy, end quote. This is preposterous. The Met is a magnificent repository of masterpieces from around the globe. It has no need to apologize for its existence. And of course, it is not just the Met. The curatorial staff at the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum issued a letter to the museum's management decrying, quote, an inequitable work environment that enables racism, white supremacy, and other discriminatory practices, end quote. Unhappy ex-staffers at the New Orleans Museum of Art have issued an open letter castigating its, quote, plantation-like culture and racist attitudes. Ditto the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh. Gary Gerrels, the senior curator of painting and sculpture at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, was forced out after remarking during an online meeting that, quote, we will definitely still continue to collect white artists. Not to do so, he said, amounts to, quote, reverse discrimination. It would, of course, but the mob didn't care. Hooligans and anarchists seizing on the spurious excuse of the death of a black man in police custody have rampaged across the country, destroying property, attacking the police, and terrorizing ordinary citizens. A statue of Teddy Roosevelt or Abraham Lincoln has nothing to do with the death of the unfortunate George Floyd. Neither, for that matter, does a statue of Robert E. Lee or Andrew Jackson. 
an innocuous comment by an eminent art historian about a figure from the past whose activities helped to preserve the material deposit of civilization is not, quote, disgusting. It is salubrious and illuminating. To pretend otherwise is to play into the hands of the zealots and enable them to ride the purity spiral another turn or two higher. We welcome Myron Magnet. We are delighted to announce that Myron Magnet is joining us as the new Criterion's second annual visiting critic. Myron, who follows Victor Davis Hanson last season, was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President George W. Bush in 2008. He is the author of books about Charles Dickens, the legacy of the 1960s, the American Founders, and most recently, Justice Clarence Thomas. He has taught English literature at Columbia University, was a columnist at Fortune, and was the editor of City Journal from 1994 to 2007. As a journalist, Myron has written on a wide range of subjects, from architecture and social policy to literature, history, and the Constitution, for many magazines and newspapers, including the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Readers who have looked ahead in this issue of The New Criterion will have noticed Myron's memorial essay on the great philanthropist Richard Gilder, who was a generous benefactor to so many worthy causes, including The New Criterion. Later in this season, Myron will deliver our second annual Circle Lecture, Stay tuned for further details about that, and he will contribute a series of essays to the magazine on virtue and its enemies. Sooner or later, our masters will allow us to reconvene events for the Friends of the New Criterion, and we look forward to welcoming Myron and you at several of those events in the coming months. Signing off for the New Criterion, I'm Roger Kimball.